Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is back and working hard before it heads off again for the summer recess and what is expected to be a brutal campaign season as President Biden visits Israel and Saudi Arabia to reassure Jerusalem and make amends with Riyadh, a move that has raised criticism in the United States, given candidate Biden was sharply critical of Mohammed bin Salman, who has been accused of ordering the assassination and dismemberment and disposal of an American Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi. Russia's war against Ukraine grinds on as Western powers vow to continue helping Kiev while at the same time expressing concerns that their own weapon stocks are drawing down. Still, allied leaders maintain that Vladimir Putin has to lose, otherwise the NATO alliance and democracy will be the big loser. In Asia, China continues to saber rattle as Japan mourns former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe who was assassinated last week. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and later in the program, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dove Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Really appreciate it, especially since we're globally uh, distributed. Uh, Michael, welcome back from vacation. Uh, you're tanned, rested, and ready to get into uh, the merge. And indeed, you've, you've had a pretty brutal week uh, already as uh, the budget works through the process. W where are we? Bring us up to speed, right? Lawmakers are back. Uh, folks are working hard. They're trying to charge across the finish line. Where are we? So a uh, lot going on this week. So first, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act is on the floor. They began floor consideration on Wednesday. Uh, a record number of amendments were filed to this bill. 1,230 amendments were filed to the NDAA. Uh, so uh, downtown, as well as the Rules Committee, had a lot to sort through. Uh, out of the 1,230, they are considering 650 of those amendments. Uh, they went through a lot of them yesterday and hope to complete the rest of them uh, today. Um, there are several amendments that you know should be uh, uh, that are of note. I mean, one was an effort uh, by uh, two progressives, Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan, to uh, get rid of the increase above the president's budget request of 30 of 37 billion. Uh, that failed. Uh, they also offered an amendment. Uh, that failed to cut the top line by $100 billion. And you know, what's notable of that one was, is that the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, actually voted for that amendment. Um, so it's interesting to me that you know, the guy who understands the, the threats that we face would vote for that amendment. Adam's a good friend of mine. I plan on, on talking to him about that uh, later today. Um, there was also Adam Smith, uh, the chairman of the committee, offered an amendment to his own bill that would allow the Navy to retire 
all nine of the littoral combat ships that it wants to scrap. And that amendment failed. Uh, 19 Democrats actually voted uh, on the other side, uh, even though that was a very close vote. Uh, there was also uh, an amendment that will make it harder for us to sell F-16s to Turkey. Uh, another amendment passed that will uh, provide for three more F-35Cs. And they also you know, got rid of several of the AUMFs that were hanging out there. And my favorite amendment uh, was uh, offered by uh, Mike Gallagher and Ruben Gallego, two good friends of mine, to establish a secure system for receiving reports of events, programs, or activities relating to UFOs. Oh, uh, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, please, Michael. I know how passionate you are about the topic. Exactly. You and Harry exactly. Reid. God bless we, you both. We are not alone. Uh, now, there were... You know, it a, was a TV show. A TV show. <laughs> there were several amendments that the Rules Committee ruled out of order that actually could have really um, scuttled the bill. I mean, amendments dealing with abortion, uh, for example. And then there were uh, amendments that were proposed by Republicans uh, limiting the moving of prisoners out of Guantanamo and also would you know, gut the Pentagon's military vaccine mandate. So all those were, were not considered. So we do expect the bill to pass with a bipartisan majority, if not later tonight, uh, sometime early tomorrow. Now, uh, you know, I know that you, you know, week after week you lament the fact that we do talk about reconciliation and build back better, but you know, it is they refuse to accept that this is dead, and this has become a very hot topic this week. Uh, that Leader Schumer has been talking to Manchin about another reconciliation package, a, a scaled-down build back better that they're actually uh, calling build back Manchin. Uh, so this is something that would look at. Uh, Medicare negotiation of prescription drug pricing. It would include the corporate tax reform, so rescinding the, uh, the, the uh, cuts from the Trump administration, uh, reducing the deficit. Uh, they also want to um, raise taxes on pass-through income for small businesses making more than $400,000 annually in order to shore up uh, Medicare. Uh, and then possibly add uh, the subsidies we talked about earlier on the Affordable Care Act, as those are expiring at the end of the year. Uh, and then also maybe some uh, 300 billions we talked about in environmental uh, climate change policy, as well as some tax credits for electric vehicles. Now, I, I still am, am flabbergasted by this because I, I, first, I think it'd be difficult to get this through the Senate. I mean, Kirsten Cinema has been on record opposing uh, raising the corporate taxes. Uh, and, but at the same time, if they are going to rescind uh, the Trump tax cuts, there are a, a big block of Northeast Democrats in the House that have made it crystal clear that they will not vote for a bill that does also not restore uh, the SALT deductions, the state and local tax deductions. Right. And right now that is not going to be in the Senate bill. And several Democrats came out yesterday uh, saying that they would not support this. And many Democrats are also saying they're not going to support tax increases. I mean, we are three months out from election. I've never seen you know, Congress pass a tax increase three months before the election. It's something you usually do right after an election, uh, hoping that people forget by the time the election comes around. Uh, Remember, now, do not do not underestimate the Democratic ability to make their ma their situation worse. No offense intended, Jim. Continue. <laughs> no, I I, uh, I I agree with you. There actually was a story earlier this week, you know, def uh, that, that many, many Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill and within the White House are characterizing right now the Democratic Party as rudderless, aimless, and hopeless. <laughs> but uh, now, in, now since but, but you but you but you digress. Hang on, yeah. before you go before you go deeper into tax policy, we we glanced off it because we went from the House and the NDAA. Uh, and and the floor votes, the status of the NDAA in the Senate, right? So just really quickly, you know, I, I, or or if you want to finish your BBB point, and then we can hit that because I just want to get an update on that as well. Yeah, let me let me get back to that because this, they are all linked, right? So because they're talking about reconciliation BBB and trying to do that in July, it is preventing the NDAA from getting to the floor in the Senate. 
right? Instead of NDA being considered right now, which it should be this week in the Senate, it is not, and likely now will not be considered until September, if, if we're lucky. Um, now, as you know, Yusika is another thing that they felt they had to get passed before the August recess. So the Senate is only going to be here for three more weeks. The House is only going to be here for two more weeks you know, after this week. And since the Democrats continue to push reconciliation, number one, it's preventing NDA from getting to the floor. Two is preventing a, an agreement on appropriations. And now three, Senator McConnell has said that he will derail USICA if the Democrats go forward with reconciliation. And that's exactly what's been happening. So now, and, and, and the USICA conference still had a long way to go. Uh, as a result, there's been a push and you know, Secretary of Commerce and Secretary of Defense sent a letter to the leaders in the House and the Senate imploring them to at least pass the CHIPS portion of the bill and imploring them saying that fully funding uh, CHIPS is the only way to reduce our reliance on former semiconductor, former production of semiconductors uh, as critical to our national security. And they really, and they said too, if these funds are not approved in the coming weeks, we're going to miss out on the current wave of semiconductor investment and fall further behind in, in global semiconductor uh, production and design. So that started to take shape. And McConnell was not opposed to that. It looked like they were going to do chips separately. And that's something I've been saying all along that I think that that, that would be pulled out possibly at, at the end of the year, including an omnibus. But now they're looking at getting that done now. Uh, and as and that looked good as of this morning, except this afternoon, Senator Cornyn poured cold water on that, saying that, um, that the other Republicans are, uh, and, in, and along with himself are going to not going to vote to proceed on chips bill next week. Uh, they want to see still what's going to happen with reconciliation. So, I, I, right now, if I was a betting man, I'd say reconciliation goes nowhere and uh, chips goes nowhere. And they're pushing the deadlines now, not just to the August recess, but now people are saying, well, the real deadline is September because that's when the fiscal year ends and that's when the vehicle of reconciliation would expire. But as we've talked about previously, September is going to be the time where we try and keep the government open because they're going to have to pass a continuing resolution. So um, there's a lot of nail biting, I think, coming up ahead. Uh, in, in, indeed. And, and give us a quick update on appropri, uh, appropriations and where we stand. So that's a good question. I, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're, pre they're preventing themselves from getting into a budget deal because they want to see what happens to reconciliation first. And Senator Shelby, the senior Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee, has said uh, repeatedly that there probably will not be a deal until after the election. Uh, however, there are rumors that the Senate is going to post their bill at the end of July. Uh, and what number that will be marked up to is, 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 uh, is unclear. Uh, and the House will take up six appropriations bills on the floor next week. Uh, however, Homeland Security and Defense are not uh, included in those six. Uh, those are bills that we do not anticipate making the way to the floor because the Democrats do not have the votes to pass it. The Republicans will vote against that bill uh, because uh, of the top line number. So I think we're going to see a repeat of what happened last year that hopefully we do get a deal on a budget number after election and we have an omnibus uh, toward the end of the year. Um, thanks very much. Uh, very action packed uh, and uh, appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, but it, it is, um, you know, regarding what you said about the Democratic Party, right? I mean, if you look at what's at stake in this election, given all of the things that have happened, one would assume that the party is going to move very, very gingerly and very carefully to, to assure that it, you know, ensures some form of not just electoral at least mitigate disaster, if not ensure electoral, you know, or, or all but assure uh, electoral defeat. Um, and it's certainly going to be something uh, interesting to watch. J just very quickly before we go to uh, Jim, who's been patiently waiting, uh, and, and Patrick, um, do 
have you noticed in your conversations with uh, Democratic and Republican friends of yours about whether the election dynamics has changed at all because of the Supreme Court? Right. I mean, if you look, listen to some Democrats uh, and indeed some independents. Right. We will be more energized than we've ever been. We realize finally what's at stake when you don't vote. Uh, and yet still very, you know, you, you can see in the president's polling numbers the division that that does not exist exist as sharply in the Republican Party anymore. Um, ultimately, is is anybody up there looking at the electoral outcome any differently in terms of for sure losing the House, where now the uh, the, the gap is even smaller because of the uh, Texas congresswoman who or a Re- Republican Latina who is uh, um, sworn in. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if they're lucky, it's 50 50 in the Senate still. But there were a lot of races that could break against them, even though Republicans are running some bad candidates. Right. I mean, you, you could run bad candidates and still win. I mean, ultimately, is there a sense, uh, in, you know, how the tea leaves are changing there, especially after people coming back from break and sort of starting to talk about this stuff? Uh, yes, but not because of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's really because of what you just mentioned earlier, the candidates and really Donald Trump, because Donald Trump has picked a lot of these candidates. And there are seats that are Republican held in the Senate that really could uh, flip to the Democrats. I mean, there's a lot of worry about Ohio with J.D. Vance. Tim Ryan on the Democratic side is an excellent candidate, um, and he fits the state uh, very well. And that's, you know, that still is a swing state, and that's a state that elects Sherrod Brown, you know, to the to the Senate every every six years. Um, there's still a lot of concern in Pennsylvania over Mehmet Oz, you know, being the nominee there. And there is a lot of concern now in Missouri. Donald Trump has not endorsed Eric Greitens, but he did the next best thing for Eric Greitens. He tanked Vicki Hartzler the other day, who is the person that people wanted to be the nominee. Vicki Hartzler, as you know, is on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, she's running for the Senate in Missouri. Uh, she's been a loyal Trump supporter. He came out against Vicki Hartzler, very strong, to tank her to help uh, Eric Greitens. That, those, those are three seats that the Republicans could lose. Um, so that would put them down to 47. So they'd have to win three more just to get back to 50-50. Um, there are seats out there that are possible, but there are some tough candidates. We've talked about Arizona. If they do nominate Blake Masters, I think that's a hard one for them to beat Mark Kelly with. I think Herschel Walker is a hard one for them to beat Raphael Warnock with. So the landscape is thinning. Uh, so there is a lot of concern. I've talked to both House members and people in the Senate about this, and the Senate really could go either way. Uh, but the, everybody feels the House is a foregone conclusion. It's just a question of how many seats the Republicans win. Jim, uh, on that uh, positive note, let's go to another positive note, which is the Russia's grinding war uh, against uh, Ukraine. Um, You know, a lot of prominent news stories about concerns about weapon stocks and and whether or not, uh, um, you know, Ukraine can afford to pull personnel off the line uh, in order to train them. New York Times had a great story about that. Uh, At the same time, you have allied leaders who, who are saying that, look, I mean, ultimately, this is very binary and Putin has to lose, although Putin continues to grind forward. Sort of give us a snapshot on you know, where we are this week in the war, what sort of jumped out at you as being sort of um, interesting? Well, I really enjoyed watching the Ukrainians use the HIMARS uh, to go up against Russian logistics centers. Uh, That is uh, strategically, you know, that is the right thing to do. And they've hit a number of ammo dumps. They've hit uh, command and control bunkers. Uh, I think uh, there's some colonels and colonel generals and general colonels who are uh, not having a very good time running and trying to avoid being hit by uh, by high Mars rounds. So, so that has been that's that has really proven itself. And I I mourn only that there's not enough. And uh, it seems that we're we can release these only incrementally. I'm not sure what number we're up to. Twelve, maybe something like that. 
they need 50 or 100. You know, that's never enough, of course. But I think it's really proven itself that uh, these that the Ukrainian uh, gunners can very quickly master that technology and make good use of these HIMARS. Uh, and, uh, and and they're survivable. You know, they can shoot and scoot. And uh, we need to keep the gunners out of harm's way because they're hard to replace, which goes to your training question. We've got to uh, the UK's got this training program where they're training uh, Ukraine infantry uh, to make them uh, more than just volunteers. And if they're going to have a counteroffensive, they need uh, they need those uh, you know troops that are better trained than they are right now in terms of just volunteers. And the Brits have this program. Uh, we're we're doing training too, I think. Uh, and um, and we need to keep these veterans, like the gunners, particularly with these skills and those that fly the drones. We've got to keep them safe, or we'll just won't have a counteroffensive. Counteroffensives are won not just by a superior number of, of kit, if you will, but it's got to be the numbers of some veteran troops as well. And a lot have been lost over the past month or so there in the Donbas uh, as they would attrit the Russian forces down. We know the Russians are having a hard time because they are doing everything they can to avoid having to have a general mobilization, including using prisoners. Uh, <laughs> they're freeing prisoners to go down there and pick up a rifle. Uh, uh, and they've got, uh, we, we know Wagner Group is down there, but they're really stretching to try to find really what's becoming cannon fodder uh, down there uh, to go up against against Ukraine. So really for both sides, it's a, it's a real logistics race. It's, um, it's, it's veteran troops, it's numbers of troops, it's uh, equipment. Uh, still, I think the Russians have, a, have an edge in terms of mass, particularly in artillery and this type of thing. Uh, and Ukraine is playing it safe. They're not, uh, you know, they're not dying to the last uh, person. You know, they're they're pulling back as they've done a couple of times now from some from some pretty important uh, uh, geography, and they're not allowing themselves to be caught in that cauldron uh, where they would be surrounded and then eliminated by artillery. They've been able to pull back and have these strategic moves so that they save themselves for, to fight another day. So I think, uh, you know, uh, Vago, people talk about strategic pause. I think that's not real convincing to me, but I, I think there's still a lot of fighting going on and where it is eventually going to go. And if you're gonna talk about strategic, where does, where is, is the uh, Kremlin think they're gonna go with this is still unclear. But what is happening is each day it becomes less and less of a possibility that they're gonna have any major gains uh, unless they do a mobilization. It's just, they just don't have uh, the mass that they would need to have a big jump somewhere. So we're gonna continue to see these artillery strikes uh, against civilian targets, these war crimes that the Russians are doing. Uh, and we're gonna see, I hope Ukraine continue to bulk up in terms of their infantry uh, through training and more HIMARS please uh, for Ukraine to use against logistics centers. Let me let me ask you, uh, you know, sort of a two part um, a question on this. Um, do you know one of the concerns that we have all expressed uh, on this uh, program, unfortunately, is whether or not the uh, alliance would really hold together ultimately and whether pressures and fissures uh, would uh, open? I'm here in uh, the UK. Uh, and one of the things that you uh, pick up here is while uh, the military guys are drawing lessons and giving support and trying to help it and making this case that it's binary, right? Russia has to lose and the West has to win. Um, one of the things you also pick up when you talk to people is electricity prices are surging because gas prices continue to go up, uh, right? Natural gas. Um, 
you talk regularly to a lot of senior European officials. Do you think that there's that stomach to keep sticking with this? Or how, how strong is the alliance and the coalition holding together at this point? Well, the uh, European Union is scrambling right now to come up with ways to help nations fill gas reserves uh, by the time winter hits. Uh, they're, they're scrambling to find alternatives to gas. Uh, and of course, the big problem is with industry, European industry that needs a lot of gas to do their production work. And it's not a matter of flipping a switch and have them turn to coal or something like that. So, uh, so there's, there's this scramble going on. And I think some nations are having some uh, very positive results. They're filling their gas reserves up pretty well right now. Um, so, but others are not. And uh, we're going to get into the winter and we'll see what happens uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the economies based on factories that are, are not operating at full capacity because they don't have the, the fuel to do it. Uh, but I really feel that I've, I've met with the, um, the Dutch uh, Minister of Defense, who was just an excellent uh, uh, leader of the, of the Netherlands in terms of their defense and security. And she uh, was saying, as a lot of other uh, you know, the officials I've seen, we've all, we all talked about this issue. And I, and I really do feel the unity is there. The unity is there and the, uh, uh, the understanding by everyone that it's gonna be a challenge is there too. And, and, and it's a matter of really educating the Alliance publics that they're gonna to have to bear under all of this as we get into the winter time. And so it's a big political issue. I think some capitals will handle it uh, better than others. Uh, and I think that, uh, the U.S. has a major role to play here in terms of leading the alliance through this hard time. Uh, I think we're also part of the solution in terms of alternative secure, uh, in terms of alternative sources of gas, LNG, and that type of thing. And so we're we're in it as well, and we're feeling the inflationary results too. So we're we've got to be in it, and and we will stay in it if the political uh, leadership does their job and brings the the, uh, the alliance population along with us. Because if we don't, and we in fact fulfill the, uh, the, the, the wishes of Putin by seeing divisions and, and, a, and a fatigue and a slacking off, it would be a disaster for Europe. And I think that point has got to be made and we've got to really uh, you know, tighten things up so that we make it through this, this first winter. Last question in terms of uh, U.S. arms exports. Uh, you know, you uh, are not the only person who's been demanding that, look, we, we should be supplying more arms more quickly. Um, right. All the all, you know, you, there's a lot that can be said about the alliance um, having to do more uh, at the end of the day. I have a kind of a two poll question. Poll number one of the uh, is, you know, are you seeing any concrete policy changes? Right. Because I think the administration has impressed us all by you know, we get a sense that they're not going to move and then they actually move and make capability available. Do you, do you see movement of capability, right? Are we moving any faster? And not just there, are we also helping allies and partners elsewhere in the world? I mean, I know having had this conversation with other allies and partners, whether they're in the Middle East or in Asia, they're a little annoyed that we're greenlining all this stuff to Ukraine on an emergency basis. And they have requests for stuff on the table that have been sort of languishing since the start of this administration, right? I mean, do, what, do, what are you getting from the folks you're talking in the White House about doing better for all of our allies and partners, not just one of them that happens to be under attack by the Russians? Well, I, I, frankly, I haven't heard so much about the, the latter piece, uh, and I certainly understand that point of view, and I'm, and I'm going to keep my ears open for it. 
But I think in terms of what we're providing uh, and, and any policy changes, et cetera, I think the one thing I would say is that we have been hesitant in the past to provide something as, uh, as uh, complex as a high Mars is to Ukraine that hasn't had any real experience of something like that. And the idea was, look, we can't give them something this sophisticated because it involves a lot of training, particularly on the maintenance side. Uh, they're going to need contractors to help them run it. Uh, and this is just something that's not going to work very well. And I think what's happened is, once again, we have been disproven. And we, by the Ukraine capabilities, they've been able to use these things quite well. And I'm confident they're going to do the maintenance and all that type of thing. So I think it's making it easier for folks uh, on the military side in the administration who know what Ukraine needs. Uh, and and uh, it makes it easier for them to go to the political masters in Washington and say, look, they really do need more HIMARS and they can they can absorb it. They got this or some other type of kit that uh, that, uh, you know, the, the White House can be hesitant to provide because they feel, well, Ukraine, they might not be able to use it very well and we would have given it up. You know, and I think I think I think there's not necessarily a policy change or a process change, but a change in understanding and thinking about what Ukraine can actually make good use of uh, and what is not too sophisticated uh, for them to actually take on and use very quickly. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we're gonna see whether it's more HIMARS or other types of advanced equipment, more of that going to Ukraine, knowing that they're gonna be able to absorb it and maintain it and use it well, because they have proven that time and time and time again. Jim, uh, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time today. I know how crazy your schedule has been. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, Vago. Thank you. Patrick, uh, you've been very, very patient. Uh, and uh, thanks very much, uh, as always, for uh, joining us. I want to start uh, by asking you about uh, Taiwan. You know, Jim was talking about uh, the support uh, that uh, the United States uh, is uh, rightfully giving Ukraine and how we can accelerate it. And again, a little bit of the feedback that I get from allies and partners around the world. Uh, Michael, I want to go to you and kind of get your sense on this as well, because I know uh, you're hearing some of these same things. Um, talk to us a little bit about Taiwan and where we are on the support package. The administration, uh, you know, has been weighing uh, for uh, some time. Uh, obviously, the sense that the Taiwanese are ready. They're very, very capable. I should point out to our audience, you know, you were our guest yesterday, uh, you and Randy Shriver, where we did a year in review on where we are with the, uh, with the uh, Chinese and a little bit of a discussion on Taiwan as well. But give us your sense on where we are on the arms package. Taiwan is a priority for the Pentagon. It's a priority, obviously, for the people in Taipei who are seized with the idea that Ukraine visualizes the war that they fear could come to them. And the knock-on effects on their arms supply is a direct relationship to the problems we're having supply in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, Ukraine's in the midst of war, so they have a priority now. But in terms of a priority potential contingency we're trying to prevent in Asia, uh, Taiwan is on the top of that list for the Secretary of Defense on down, for members of Congress. And there are discussions going on right now with the Hill where it looks very promising about trying to provide new um, uh, foreign military uh, equipment uh, to Taiwan. Um, and we'll have to see how that comes out and whether that can get there. There are a lot of problems that they've been trying to overcome. We, we've got a long list of things we haven't delivered to Taiwan because the defense industrial base maybe uh, has too little capacity. 
because there are problems on the Taiwan side, because there are problems over information security, the list goes on. And so the Pentagon's been looking for whether they could go through third parties, whether they could boost the indigenous capabilities in Taiwan. Uh, either way, um, uh, Taiwan is asking for more right now, and they know what they need more based on what they're seeing out of Ukraine, right? They know, of course, the old truths about logistics. They know they're going to have to be very dependent on Japan, the United States for slot protection and defense. Um, they're certainly uh, able to support and sell to the public asymmetric systems like the HIMARS that Jim was talking about, but even lesser systems like the Javelins that maybe Taiwan didn't think was so sexy before, but now they see, you know, light and mobile can be very effective against a, a, big, a big foe. Um, I think they also understand that the level of political will to fight, um, to be the blunt force, if you will, against a Chinese invasion force, if that comes, uh, will be dependent on the assurance that the U.S. will be a surge force, U.S. and allies and partners will be a surge force. Uh, and that's certainly what has helped Ukraine, uh, presumably, uh, show so much political will to stand up to a much bigger opponent in Russia. Um, and, I, and Taiwan says that they could do the same. One of the couple of things that are missing right now in Taiwan, one of them is uh, the real defense budget. Um, they're talking about spending more on defense, but there's still skepticism here in Washington that they're not talking about going from 2 to 3% of GDP. They're talking about going from 2.1 to 2.2%. And they really want to you know, see in Washington a commitment, I think, both on the Hill and in the administration. That's true. The second thing is, although the Taiwan uh, defense officials like to talk about reserve reform being a very high priority, and that is, um, they're not yet seized with the opportunity that is, exists right now for creating a real territorial defense force, because that ultimately makes Taiwan the porcupine state and defense strategy that many people think is the best bet they have to dissuade China from going kinetic. So how is China going to respond to this, uh, Patrick? Because each time China tries uh, to move the line, I mean, their disinformation is extraordinary. Nobody, is nobody but China is talking about, you know, an Asian NATO uh, for example, right? I mean, there's, they're increasingly creating these stalking horses and knitting together these arguments as justification, a little bit like what Russia was doing with Ukraine, right? Step by step by step, well, they have weapons labs, you know, they're a threat to Russia. Talk to us a little bit about how China is going to respond and, and the really ramping up disinformation campaign they have going um, that, that does have some very senior folks, uh, you know, I don't want to say concerned, right? But some of our mutual friends are tracking it carefully. Let's put it that way. Yeah, a couple of lines on the disinformation campaign that is going into hyperdrive really out of China. Um, one of the points that's been made um, by friends from Taiwan is that in 2014, uh, when uh, Russia uh, first annexed Crimea, um, the Chinese were, were rather inactive on the information warfare front. Um, they're very active right now, even to the point where they're trying to hide their activity by saying, oh, we're being objective. But, you know, we're being objective, but uh, Russia was provoked into invading uh, Ukraine, um, you know, which is uh, a, a real stretch. Um, and they know it. They're also using disinformation, though, right now against Taiwan in, this, in terms of talking about, see, there are no U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. So Taiwan, you can't really count on the United States. And that led to, in polling numbers in Taiwan, a 15% drop of people in Taiwan who were unreassured, if you will, about whether the Americans would be there as that surge force. It went from 60 to 45% in one leading poll in Taiwan. 
And that's just all disinformation. It's not nothing, nothing to do with objective reality um, because the United States commitment, as we see with President Biden's statements, um, you know, has never been higher uh, in terms of the, the will to support Taiwan if invaded. Um, I think we also see it, though, in uh, China's assertiveness in the region. And, and clearly the Pentagon is seized with the idea that uh, they have to stand up to this assertiveness. The uh, freedom of navigation operations uh, go on on a routine basis. Uh, the latest one this week, USS Benfold, uh, DDG-65, Arleigh Burke-class uh, destroyer based out of Japan. Not for the first time. Uh, we saw this same uh, scene in January with the Benfold around the Paracels, where China claims to have chased it away, that it's uh, disrupting, it's creating insecurity and, and, and belligerence, um, and that it's um, you know, violating uh, all sorts of norms. You know, that's all propaganda from China's perspective. And the U.S. Navy has come right out and said these are just lies and misrepresentations of both international law and what we've done. And it's actually the Chinese who are acting aggressively in their air and naval operations. And so also this past week, we saw Japan in the United States uh, increase their air activity. In fact, this past month, there have been some 50 plus aircraft uh, of Japan and the United States flying around trying to demonstrate to China that look, uh, don't don't be reckless because we are there and ready to deter conflict. The confrontation and competition right now in the Indo-Pacific continues to center uh, down in the Pacific, uh, the South Pacific and the Pacific Islands form that 14 nation body uh, meeting this week um, in Fiji um, allowed for one of the big observer countries, the United States, to have Vice President Kamala Harris joined by video and announced that we're renewing a 32-year-old tuna fishing treaty um, and also underscored the fact that the administration is trying to triple the budget request for helping the Pacific Islands, not to mention open up a couple new embassies, send the Peace Corps to a few countries, etc. Um, in contrast, uh, the Chinese had military attaches sit in with the media delegation, and they were evicted from the meeting because they weren't invited and they weren't media. Um, and so you have a kind of a turning of, uh, of the public relations uh, coup that China made back in April when they signed a, a security pact with the Solomons. And then we had Wang Yi, you know, do his tour throughout the region to try to hastily uh, come up with a multilateral security pact. He did sign, you know, dozens of agreements, but he didn't get the real thing he wanted, which was a multilateral development security pact. They're still trying to do that. But meanwhile, the United States has, has sort of muscled their way back in to look like we're the partner of choice for this region, thanks to the Pacific Islands Forum. And that's a you know ongoing confrontation, but it has real implications when you think about the US working with allies and partners to try to prevent China from creating a really big uh, toehold in the South Pacific. And I should put right when Wang Yi was doing this, uh, the uh, new Australian foreign minister, uh, Penny Wong, was also out there doing her own diplomacy and counter messaging, uh, which which you had mentioned some weeks ago was was remarkably effective. Um, let me ask you about uh, Japan uh, and uh, and South Korea uh, really quickly uh, in, in terms of an update, obviously. Uh, a tragic time for uh, Japan, uh, mourning uh, the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, obviously, the LDP won. Talk to us about the victory in the elections and what what it mean and what it means for his ideas and national security, which are really getting a bump because there are Japanese who are now making the case. You know what? The man was a visionary, uh, at least from a Japanese perspective, and it's important for us to operationalize some of these visions. Talk to us about the LDP victory and what it means in terms of Japanese national security, and also how everybody in the region is seeing Japan as a consequence, which is a very thorny issue. 
Well, that's a lot to try to generalize, but I will start by just saying that Prime Minister Kishida now has at least three years of uninterrupted leadership uh, opportunity here because the LDP, along with its Komato uh, partner in the coalition, um, has a very secure position in the upper house and the lower house. And now Kishida can essentially uh, implement some of Abe's vision on the national security front, including um, the very controversial issue of constitutional reform. Although constitutional reform is not quite as controversial as it sounds, because uh, frankly, uh, Japan's self-defense force is already a credible defense capability. And so just changing the words uh, to say that this is lawful uh, is essentially uh, endorsing the status quo. The tougher issues will become when uh, Kishida-san has trying to actually make this commitment of a substantial increase of defense budget, probably not doubling, frankly, over the next five years, the, you know, in terms of GDP, but a substantial increase, I think, is coming. And I think a big part of it will be focused on counter-strike weapons, as the, Chinese, as the Japanese refer to, you know, missile launches, offensive missiles. Um, and I think that's those two issues in terms of the budget, of the defense budget and counter-strike capabilities, are likely to incur the bigger political fight as well as the bigger disinformation campaign from China, which will be trying to uh, prey upon uh, the weaknesses about Japan's relations with the, with the region uh, as it tries to actually strengthen its self-defense capabilities. So in many ways, Japan is going to be implementing Abe's vision here. Uh, Prime Minister Kishida will be the man to do it, uh, which is ironic because many people saw him as more of the dove in the LDP party. Um, and yet uh, he, is, he is set to do this and is committed to doing it. Um, the, you know, there is no substitute for, for, for Prime Minister Abe. Uh, he was indeed a political giant um, for Japan, for a vision, visionary that the Americans uh, uh, use from both our political parties in terms of crafting an Indo-Pacific strategy over these recent decades um, and a very stalwart ally uh, with the United States. So, um, you know, the, he will be uh, sorely missed, to put it mildly, and there will be a big state funeral coming up here uh, this fall in Japan. I think, um, you know, back to the Korean Peninsula, um, I, I did want to talk about the, uh, the fact that, you know, President Yoon, although his popularity is not high right now in South Korea, even though he's recently elected, um, is moving forward with the technology part of his uh, alliance building. Um, so he's had Secretary, he's had Treasury Secretary Yellen visit the LG Science and R&D Hub, Hub um, in Seoul. This is just uh, weeks after, of course, President Biden visited a major Samsung semiconductor manufacturing plant, um, impressing Korea to kind of get on board with this chip for alliance of the United States, Japan, right. Taiwan. Um, that ties into the things that uh, Michael was talking earlier about, a CHIPS Act, um, you know, whether it happens now, which they would want uh, in the administration, or whether it happens at the end of the year. Either way, uh, this really should be a bipartisan a commitment to making sure that we can reduce our reliance on foreign semiconductor production. Uh, and this CHIPS Act, uh, major subsidies for U.S. chip manufacturers, is the best uh, best tool we have potentially in our quiver. Michael, um, uh, before uh, we, we go to Dove, who's going to give us a Mideast uh, update from actually from Israel, uh, where uh, he is right now, um, just very quickly on the arms export issue, uh, without getting specific, is that a challenge and an issue that you're, uh, because I know that there are some uh, nations you obviously represent 
But is this something that actually uh, your corporate clients as well as international clients are asking you about? Uh, because, you know, I, I certainly have been getting feedback that they would like the arms export, you know, that the, the taps really were quite open in the Trump administration and that we've dramatically, that this administration has dramatically slowed down, even if it is engaging with allies and partners more closely. The question is, are we getting the capability uh, ultimately? Yeah, this is a, a very hot topic right now uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, I think, uh, you know, the defense community sees a tremendous amount of opportunity uh, because I think a lot of countries that use Russian equipment now are not either going to want to buy it or also not going to be able to buy that equipment because the Russians are going to need to restock their own military. So it creates a lot of opportunity for us. Um, but, you know, it ha- we have seen the spigot close a little more during this administration, but also the challenge of getting things through Congress has become harder. Uh, and the, the tiered review system uh, also slows things down. That system that was implemented during the Obama administration, you know, to wait for informal notification before going to formal, uh, instead of, you know, the 30-day clock beginning to run, it really can slow sales down for years at a time. If I've had sales, I've worked to NATO partners that have taken over three years uh, to get cleared on Capitol Hill. Uh, the other concern is that do we have enough equipment to even meet those needs? Like, for example, when it comes to Taiwan, um, you know, can we be shoring them up now at the same time we shore up Ukraine and also don't deplete our own stockpiles that we are going to need for our own defense? Uh, it's becoming a problem because the, the, the ability of to ramp up production is not as, as easy, as quick as people think it is. Uh, and there's a lot of people from Capitol Hill asking those questions to try and figure out what they can do uh, to help industry you know, overcome that. But this is, uh, I think it's an excellent question. This is a hot topic now. I think it's going to be even hotter next year. Michael and Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I uh, hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Dove. Thanks so very much for joining us. And by the way, congratulations to your granddaughter for her extraordinary performance uh, in uh, the Maccabee Games against Germany. Yeah, thank you. My grandson plays uh, this next week and my granddaughter plays against, I think it's Canada tomorrow. So I've got two Uh, of them in the games. Uh, absolutely. Mazel tov uh, on that. Obviously, um, another important tie-in, President Biden visited the Maccabee Games happening in Israel, obviously, and visiting Israel in an extraordinary meeting he had with Yair Lapid, uh, the caretaker prime minister, uh, an important agreement that he struck with the uh, labor leader on a commitment uh, on Iran's uh, nuclear program. Uh, which was a very interesting message at the time. The administration continues to try to negotiate or resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, give us your sense on uh, the conversation and the meetings uh, the president uh, has had in Israel and how that's moving a needle because he got an extraordinary welcome. Yeah, well, um, he's an, he, he, as he calls himself, he's an old friend. Uh, he, uh, the, the meeting with uh, Lapid and the Iran issue, it's very interesting. Some people have uh, interpreted it as continuing the differences between Israel and the United States. The United States still is negotiating or trying to with Iran. It's committed uh, to stop a nuclear weapon, which is a very different thing from saying how it's going to be stopped, which is what Lapid uh, wanted. And I guess Netanyahu in his meeting with Biden uh, emphasized even more as he's done in the past. But the fact of the matter is that the United States is publicly committed to making sure that Iran will not have a nuclear weapon. And if the talks fail uh, and they're not looking very good, 
then uh, the United States has to come up with plan B that ensures that there is no nuclear weapons. So I don't think it, they were, the differences were as great as some people are making out. What I do know is that uh, when he met with uh, Minister of Defense Gantz, uh, Gantz was delighted with the meeting. And uh, again, uh, had Biden uh, hedged or somehow tried to back away from that and other issues, I can't see how the Minister of Defense, literally, uh, people were saying he was just really happy with the meeting. Um, right. Biden said something I, else. I should, I, should, I should point out to our audience that not only is Benny Gantz the defense minister, but he's a former Ramat Khal, which is the head or, or the Mark Milley, the chairman of the Israel Defense Forces. So he's not oh, yeah. somebody who's some cupcake who can be sort no. of tricked uh, at the end of the day. He's, he's no softy. No, no question about it. Um, the other thing that I think has considerable significance for American domestic democratic politics is that the president said you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. And given wow. that there is a, a growing uh, element in the Democratic Party, and not only in the party, but also on university campuses where a lot of Jewish students feel they're harassed if they are pro-Israel, the president's statement is quite significant. He said uh, he's a Zionist. Uh, and so uh, I think that one may be glossed over by a lot of people, but it, it, it's important. And finally, on Saudi Arabia, uh, look, the, the, of course, he's going to do what he can to uh, improve relations. But I think that what's Im most important is that he and the Saudis talk about the Iranian threat apart from Israel. In other words, they're, the Israelis are concerned, but the Saudis are separately concerned. And it's because of their separate concerns that, in fact, Israel and Saudi Arabia are getting closer together. How much he'll, he'll be able to achieve uh, in practical terms. Remember, he's trying to get Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. Um, it's an open question. And then finally, uh, and this again is, is significant, you have this new group you know, you've got the Quad in Southeast Asia, you've got the Five Eyes on intelligence. Well, now you have the I2U2. It sounds like something out of Star Wars, but it's India, Israel, <laughs> the United States, and the United Arab Emirates. They had a summit. They'd already had a foreign minister's meeting. Right. The, the summit essentially underscored economic cooperation, and it demonstrated that Israel's in the big leagues. Uh, you know, it, it, the United States has tried to move closer to India over the last few years. Uh, India is clearly an important economic power. The United Arab Emirates is very important economically in the Gulf. And here you have the United States and Israel right. together with those two countries. So that's significant, too. Um, a lot of people, I think, in this country uh, were not sure how they would receive Biden. Uh, it turns out it was a love fest. It's the only way to put it. Uh, and uh, let me ask you, I mean, we've talked about the uh, on the program for weeks about how the president threads this uh, needle. Um, we've talked about how right politics should end at the water's edge. But sadly, that's not been the case. And the president finds himself going uh, to reconcile. Uh, I've yeah. been in London, had a lot of conversations uh, with um, a lot of leaders uh, about why there is a little bit of trepidation that the U.S. president would go on bended knee to Riyadh. Ultimately, how does the president has, have to play this uh, in order for it to 
proved to be a successful visit. Well, um, he can't avoid shaking hands with uh, Prince Mohammed, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Salman because he hugged and shook hands in Israel, even though his instructions, as it were, were not to do so. Uh, and so that already uh, could lead to a photo op that a lot of people may criticize. He has already said that uh, the, the, you know, he's clearly upset about what happened to Khashoggi. He's not defending uh, the crown prince in any way on that issue. But he also said he has to look after America's interests. And you cannot rupture uh, a, a relationship that began under Franklin Roosevelt and by and large is held up under all kinds of circumstances. I mean, after all said and done, Saudi Arabia never dealt with Israel for years. It, it, it was a major a actor after 1973 when you, we had the oil crisis. and There were lines at gas stations, which we, by the way, don't have today, despite high prices. So, you know, the, we've had our differences with the Saudis, but they're very important to American interests. And I guess what the president is going to try to do is to demonstrate that, yes, he's concerned about the human rights situation. Yes, he's concerned about Khashoggi. But yes, he's concerned about American interests. And American interests are, as they have been for decades, uh, to be aligned with Saudi Arabia. Well, one uh, last question. Uh, obviously, Mike, uh, Michael Herson uh, discussed uh, both on the NDAA uh, and uh, both, right? I mean, we're waiting on reconciliation. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things standing in the way before the Senate finishes and, and Yusika gets uh, tied up in that. What's your sense yeah. on, a, on a budgetary dynamic uh, and, and where we're heading, especially after what was, uh, you know, as, as Michael pointed out, fast and furious uh, on uh, a whole, what, like th like 1,200 or so uh, amendments. What What's your sense on where we are and where we're going on the budget? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've said this before, uh, and I think in the past Michael agreed with me. Um, I don't think there will be a defense budget uh, separate and apart from an overall package, some kind of deal probably reached after the November elections. Um, there's no incentive on the part of the Republicans to cut a deal right now. Why should they? And uh, depending on how those elections go and, and who, you know, we don't really know. I mean, there are some issues that have arisen. On the one hand, the economic issues and the president's popularity are what they are. We know that. Uh, but on the other hand, you have the, uh, the Supreme Court decision on abortion. And no one really knows how a lot of the suburban housewives who've supported Republican uh, Democrats in the past, how are they going to vote? Um, they, you know, they, they switched to the Republicans. Um, they voted then for, for Biden. Um, it's, it's just unclear. And so uh, that's a very, very big question mark. The suburban, the suburban soccer moms, as they're called, and um, of course, the independents. And so uh, to, to expect a defense budget to be approved by Congress before the elections, I mean, those of us in the defense world hope it'll happen. Uh, and maybe Mike now thinks it will, but I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, as, as they would say, uh, from your mouth to God's ears. Exactly, or inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Dove, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, and all the best to the family and best of luck to your grandkids in uh, the Maccabee games. It's absolutely terrific. They're competing uh, and we wish them all the luck and look forward to hearing what the scores are next week. Okay. Thank you.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.